0: It was just bonkers. There was a full solar eclipse in my first week in China. I remember looking out the window and being like, I'm living on Mars right now on another planet. I remember coming out of people's square and just being so overwhelmed. I'd never seen so much neon. I'd never seen so many people. Just literally seas of people on Nanjing Road, Nanjing Donglu. How often in your life do you see something you've never seen before? And then you live in China and you're seeing something you've never seen before on an hourly basis. It's just Mm. so exciting.
1: Andy is the head of comedy for Asia, Australia and New Zealand at US multinational entertainment company Live Nation. Andy's Asia journey started in the same way he ventured into comedy, on a whim After moving to Shanghai in 2009, Andy built a thriving local comedy community that fostered the rise of stand-up comedy in mainland China. He owned and ran Shanghai's Kung Fu Comedy Club before moving to Hong Kong to launch the ill-fated Riff Comedy Club. Andy is now a recovering comedian, having spent years touring China and Asia performing in Chinese and English we talk about lawyers becoming comedians, language as a tool to help unpeel the layers of the city, a Canadian becoming China's favourite foreigner, and eggplants. Welcome to Cloud Asia, where we ask Australians to take us on their journey to Asia capability by choosing a food, song, show, and person that captures the essence of their experience to help us understand what Being at Ozy with Clout is all about. I'm Lucy Doo, and here is Andy Curtin. Good evening, Andy. Welcome to Clout Asia.
0: Thank you very much for having me. I'm excited to come on as a speaker rather than a yeah.
1: Well, for many of you who don't know Andy, he's also a very well-versed podcaster and my own personal inspiration. In the intro, I mentioned that you're a comedian. That's actually how we first met back in the day in Shanghai. And I think the story- A million years ago. A million years ago. And the actual story, I don't know if you remember this part, was I went to see a comedy show at your club. And- it was terrible. It was incredibly unfunny and I couldn't sit through it. So I left. And when I went outside, I saw a bunch of girls also sitting there, one of whom is your wife, and she was also equally as bored and we became friends.
0: And then that's how I met you. That's my whole marketing strategy. (laughs) You hate the show, but you're going to meet The friends of your life when you walk outside the room in the bar.
1: (laughs) Exactly. Maybe we should start by you sharing a little bit about how you ended up in Shanghai and running Shanghai's one and only Kung Fu Comedy Club.
0: I was at university for too long, seven and a half years to get an undergraduate degree. And I just wanted to get out of Melbourne. You know, when you come from Melbourne, you do really feel like you're living in the far corner of the universe. And it was in my head, I was like, you got to go now because if you can't go now and live somewhere else, you're never going to do it. It's never going to happen. So I wanted to go somewhere I could learn a language and China stood out. And I wish I could tell you I did more research and knew more about it, but I just jumped in and was so far out of my depth beyond all imagination. And it took me a couple of years of knocking around corporate jobs that I was really getting my head kicked in on before I started to run some comedy shows just out of interest to do something different that wasn't staring at an Excel spreadsheet. And there wasn't any stand-up comedy in China at that point. And it just really took off like wildfire. I was literally like, let's do something on the weekend that's a little different. And it was so well-received. People were like, when is the next event And we just kept doing events and it really had the wind in its sails in those early years.
1: Were you doing any comedy back in Australia? What was your undergraduate degree?
0: I studied law and also engineering.
1: Incredibly funny subjects.
0: (laughs) Just pure comedy. Well, my attempt to, to study them was pretty funny.
1: Did you ever actually spend any time in a law firm or an engineering firm?
0: I did work in a law firm for a few years. In my last few years, I was working as a paralegal and very quickly discovering that it didn't suit my personality on any level at all.
1: What got you interested in trying stand-up
0: yourself? I don't know if you're aware of this, but when I was a kid, the most popular video at every video store in Australia was Eddie Murphy's Delirious. And it was a comedy special that he'd filmed in 1983. And it was unquestionably the most rented video in every video store. And I watched it as a kid and it just blew my mind. I'd never seen stand-up. I remember watching it and getting to the end and being like, where's the rest of the movie? I guess it was just this seed germinating that I wasn't consciously aware of. guess I had a moment to get to a microphone and I kind of jumped on it. Ironically, and I definitely wasn't mindful of this, but Australia has a long history of lawyers becoming comedians. Interesting. Uh, yes. Nazim Hussain was a lawyer. The D generation, I think Rob Sitch was a lawyer. The guys from Chase's War on Everything, there's some lawyers in there as well. So oh. I wasn't breaking any new ground.
1: Lots of lawyers becoming comedians. And one thing led to another. When did Kung Fu Comedy Club get started?
0: I think it was the beginning of 2010. And I remember I was in Shaman on holiday for New Year's Eve talking to someone about this upcoming first show that we had. And we couldn't find a name. The guys suggested the most ridiculous names. I've got a list of them somewhere. It was like the Laugh Sweatshop. (laughs) <laughs> it was like big trouble in funny China. And I just was like, I need to put something on this poster. Just come for comedy. We'll change it later. And it's stuck like glue. So that became the name that we lived with for 10 years after that.
1: Let's dial back to when you first got to China. Where did you move? Was it straight to Shanghai?
0: I was always based in Shanghai. Although as my comedy business grew, I was traveling around China pretty frequently. Yeah. the
1: end Or well, maybe we'll start with your song nomination You have picked Hui By Jackie Chun What's so special about this song?
0: I only ever had a Chinese teacher For I think a couple of months When I first moved there And she just used to send me these songs And I just listened to them again and again and again It was funny because at the time I couldn't make out any of the words and yeah. I would just listen to it again and again and again. And back then, if you were learning Chinese, they didn't have smartphones, didn't have the ability to write Chinese characters. So to look up characters, you would have to count the number of strokes in the left, the radical, and look it up, and then yeah. count the strokes in the right. It would take literally five minutes to look up one character. And that song, it's just so powerfully transports me back to sitting in my little apartment above Shinjuku Station with this a dictionary just trying to figure this language out. And as I got better at Chinese, I eventually understood the song, what it was about. And it's a beautiful song. It really has a strong emotional connection for me for that time. It's such an exciting time when you first move out there.
1: Let's have a listen. 我唱的他心碎, 我唱的他心碎,
0: 这年人分手, oh.
1: What were some of the early memories of you moving to Shanghai back in 2009, which is five years before I moved there? I imagine a lot would have been different.
0: It was just bonkers. There was a full solar eclipse in my first week in China. I remember looking out the window and being like, I'm living on Mars right now on another planet. I remember coming out of People's Square and just being so overwhelmed. I'd never seen so much neon. I'd never seen so many people, just literally seas of people on Nanjing Road, Nanjing Donglu. How often in your life do you see something you've never seen before? And then you live in China and you're seeing something you've never seen before on an hourly basis. It's just... Mm so exciting i think those are the defining memories and i've talked about it on a blog online before about going to places like Yintang, which had a burgeoning rock scene of chinese rock groups and stuff and it was just the expo was in 2010 the country was opening up shanghai was opening up i remember they were building metro stops faster than yeah. they could upgrade maps in the metro so you could literally take the metro off the edge of the map I remember just doing it and being like we're off into the no man's land yes
1: that sense of creativity was still I would say there in 2014 when I moved and I remember for example and this may mean very little to people who didn't live in Shanghai (laughs) during those years shelter the original shelter oh my god on Wu Yuan Lu, I think, and yep. the original Arkham that was in the French concession. I think it was on Wulamuchi Lu as well. My favorite music festival is Echo or Concrete and Grass.
0: Uh, that was Archie Hamilton's festival. That was
1: exactly they only did it twice, if I can recall, maybe three times before they had to wind it back. It was just such a incredible moment for artists to express themselves in whatever crazy form and I imagine maybe for comedy it was similar.
0: We had a real moment you can't plan cultural moments and I don't want to overblow the significance of anything we did but you really just had a sense like man something's really happening here. People were developing their careers. I I think I might have been in the first ever Mandarin stand-up show. I've yet to find anyone that can tell me of stand-up happening even close to that time or before it. And now, like, some of the guys we used to work with are selling out arenas across, like, comics that were at our club sold out at the Beacon Theatre in New York. It's a huge industry. One of the guys who was an open micer sold 16,000 tickets in an hour in Shanghai.
1: And were you doing comedy in both Mandarin and English?
0: Yeah. Yeah. How was that? When you think of like open mics in English, it's your experience, right? It's like someone boring on stage and people sitting out at the bar just to get a break from it. When the Chinese scene really started to get traction, I remember there was an open mic every Wednesday in Shujia and they would have 300 people at the open mic every week. Jeez. And we would just go there to test out material And it was the same night as the English comedy open mic, which Mm. they used to get pretty popular, actually. We might get like 60 to 80 people at at a Wednesday night open mic. And Drew Fralick, another American comedian, and I, when we could coordinate, we'd go and do this Chinese open mic to 300 people in Chinese, jump in a ditty, sip across town, hit the other comedy club, and play 80 people in English. You know, it was a surreal moment in our lives being able to even do that.
1: I'm really curious. From both two perspectives, the first is the writing, the kind of materials. When you do a English kind of open mic or an English joke, is it any different to a Chinese joke in terms of the thought process or the writing of it and the delivery? Or it's pretty much the same, just a language difference?
0: Because of a language difference in a different language, you're two different people in two different languages. Mm. And then there is an ability to manipulate the language that's much easier in your native tongue. So they do make the two different. But fundamentally, the process is the same. As much as audiences might not like to hear this, stand-up is a lot of doing the same joke again and again, but adapting it and incorporating people's reactions to it. Mm. And so the audience is actually involved in the writing process. And because the audience is in Chinese are different, not that being Chinese is different, but that they reference and they connect to ideas differently just because of what certain words mean to them and what are attached to certain words. That yeah. you. So the jokes, which often started as the same joke, would veer off in two different directions through the process of performing it and rewriting it.
1: For your person of part, you have nominated a comedian. Yes. Who did you pick?
0: Dashan. Everybody knows him and anyone that's, any foreigner that's tried to learn Chinese has spent years being compared to Dashan. He is the be all and end all of benchmarks of speaking Chinese as a non-Chinese person. But he's also someone who, when we started to really get going with the Chinese scene, he got involved. The first podcast interview I ever did was with him. In fact, I knew that I could interview him and just started podcasting so that I could have an excuse to interview him.
1: That's incredible. What was the podcast? Which one was that?
0: That was Stuck in the Middle, uh, yeah. which I did. It, actually, to be honest, it wasn't the first podcast I'd ever done, but it was the first time I'd really tried to build something, and I did mm. 120 episodes, and that was the first one. And I think I had him on three or four times in those 120, but he's a real enigma. In what he,
1: way?
0: He is so Chinese in so many ways, mm. and he has an understanding of Chinese culture that... Chinese people will often tell you guys beyond most people's ability in China to speak the language or understand the culture. And he's very talented and he's lived an existence that no one's ever lived, as far as I know. He's so famous within the Chinese community. It's absurd. And how did he build up his profile to that? He's obviously talented, right? Like He obviously had an aptitude and an interest to do Mm -hmm. very well at it. He told me this story and I'll try to my best to remember it, but he was in Beijing when they were going to put some foreigners in a comedy sketch Mm. on the Chinese New Year Gala and one of the guys was sick or couldn't do it or something and he was tagged in last minute and he didn't even know what the show was. Like he didn't even know that it was the biggest show in the world. And he did it and his brother was in town and he told me the story the next morning he got up and he's walking around with his brother and the first person they see is like, oh, my God, Darshad. And he's like, oh, they must have been at the studio last night. There was a few yeah. there. Second person, oh, my God, it's Darshad. He said by the fifth person, he was like, I need to ask them how many people have seen the show. We just didn't realise. And I think he might have been the first foreigner ever on it and he did it four times. And that is huge. To be yeah. on that show four times for anyone is massive. For a foreigner, it's, no one's ever come close. You right. Made him at your club? He's such a Canadian. you would be the president of the planet. you would still want to just have a chat. He's very approachable. He's extremely smart and talented. Mm. And we've had a chance to try and build something and work with him on it. It was defining of my time there and what I did from a work perspective.
1: And how long were you in Shanghai before you moved to Hong Kong?
0: 10 years, exactly. 10 years and one month. Wow. What
1: prompted the move?
0: They shut down the club. And then I had a sense and subsequently proven to be incorrect sense that Hong Kong would be a good place to open a club. I think within two weeks of assigning the lease, the protests broke out and we had six months of protests while we built it. And then it was delayed to open because of that. And it opened for two weekends before it was shut for COVID.
1: Jeez, you must have been pretty heartbroken.
0: I felt like I put a bit of my soul into that place. It was a very much a culmination of everything I'd learned in China. I just went all in. I oversaw every screw that was purchased for that Mm. place, every design choice, the height of the stage, the height of the ceiling, the location, Mm. the AC units, the entrance, everything. And we did it and we made it and it was beautiful. I really believe it was the best comedy club on the planet just in terms of how it was built and it just wasn't meant to be, unfortunately.
1: What's happened to it now? Has it been converted to something else? You know,
0: it's so funny the way your time in China works because sometimes it's very poetic, I find. I was having lunch with a comedian in a building on my last day in Hong Kong and we realised we were below, the floor below. And we're like, why don't we go and have a look? And we snuck up the fire escape and it had been completely gutted.
1: Uh,
0: No. It was like a bare shell. And it was just... I opened those doors and I saw this just empty room and I was like, that chapter's finished.
1: Yeah. That's really heart-wrenching. <laughs> <laughs> and now you're still in the comedy industry. It's like the mafia.
0: <laughs> Can't get out. <laughs> no, even if you wanted to. Now, I got a call and someone in a very attractive role in my industry was leaving their job in Australia. Yeah. from Melbourne and she said, hey, would you take my job if I left it? Yeah. And I said, yes. And she said, okay, here's what I'm going to do. I'm not going to tell my employer. I'm going to just hire you to work for me. And the day I hit Australian shores, she quit. So they had no choice. They had a hiring freeze in the middle of COVID. So they had to give me the job.
1: Wow. That's crazy. And are you still working much with Asian
0: artists. I manage a few Asian artists, such as Jason Leong and Jordan Leung is a Hong Kong comedian and some in, an Indian act Daniel Fernandez and, and Sam C in Singapore. So I still have a lot of involvement in the scene in that perspective. And there are other Asian artists that I'm bringing into Australia and New Zealand and yeah. doing their Asia stuff as well. So it's still growing. It's still a scene. It's a scene that suffered really badly from COVID. Yeah. Comedy Asia in English, suffered horribly due to COVID. It has not gotten to where it was pre-COVID. I still believe in its long-term potential.
1: I feel like now, at least in the last five years, being Asian-Australian, I have noticed a lot more visibility, advocacy for all Asian-Australians, more
0: so than before.
1: Has that impacted or played more of a
0: positive role in the comedy space? I would say definitely there is such a clear demand for Asian voices in comedy. You could look at Ali Wong or Jimmy O. Yang or Ronnie Chung or Nigel Ung, Uncle Roger. There's Mm. some people who've just had stratospheric success. Comedy's a very equitable space. People think it's this horrible thing that's racist or misogynistic or whatever, but there's a lot of justice in comedy. And minority voices are just interesting to hear from. They tend to be given a lot of support because it is interesting to hear people with different stories. And Asian voices being represented has been a really positive thing. And the demand from it for it goes beyond the Asian community. Like Ronnie Chung doesn't just have Asian fans, even though he has many. I know it's risky for a white guy to really talk about race or anything like that comedy, but I think it's been a real positive trend that hasn't finished playing out yet i think there's a lot of growth to happen in that space
1: going back to shanghai what did you pick for
0: food so for food i picked eggplant because eggplant to me was just i just always remember early on that it was one of those things that i never ate i never ate eggplant like it was just a food i wouldn't even think about eating
1: there's not a lot of options in Western cuisine with eggplant. What would you make with eggplant?
0: Nothing. And like these that? days, people love to have their cafe, have a weird eggplant dish or something that is different. Like that, well, people will be all, well, try that with the goat's cheese or whatever. Yeah. But pre-2009, that wasn't the case. And I just noticed it was on every table at every restaurant that we went yeah. to when we ordered. And it was so great. I sort of fell in love with some of those dishes and it was a food that was introduced to me properly by living in China.
1: I did ask you for your favorite. I'll leave you to have a think which one it is and maybe we'll include it in our show notes. The one that I remember it's not necessarily my favorite, but you remember those skewer places where they would just oh. cut an eggplant in half and dump a lot of garlic. Yeah, and that was the best. I remember having that for the first time and I was like, how have I never thought about? That's what I
0: mean. It never even occurred to me that this could be so delicious.
1: Last but not least, your TV show, you've nominated Wuju, which I think means like snail's home if you translate it directly.
0: I think internet speak. It's like a humble dwelling. And this was a show that I watched religiously when learning Chinese. And it came out when I moved to China, the year 2009. Highly recommend anyone going back to watch it. It is an absolute MBA on people in Shanghai and the challenges for the Chinese people living there. It allowed me to understand so much of that city that I didn't know how to find out about otherwise. For example, it tracks the story of a couple who had a kid, have left the kid with their parents in their hometown and have moved to try and buy a house in Shanghai and set themselves up up, and they didn't realise how hard it would be to even get a house and how expensive everything is. Mm. There's a government official who's cheating on his wife with a young girl who can't afford her own rent. There's an old couple living in a laneway house that's being knocked over by property developers and they don't want to move out. They're all very... Real stories. They could happen to anybody. They're so stereotypically Shanghai. Correct. Stories. But if you just go there as a foreigner, there's no website to tell you these stories.
1: No. I think what's great about it is it's not a foreigner's perspective, right? Like I think about when I was studying Chinese in Australia at school, often the things that you learn about, and it's the same for Chinese people studying English. You get taught these things that are actually completely irrelevant. I would like an apple. (laughs) Exactly. All Beijing people eat Peking duck.
0: So local. Because I went there with no Chinese, my first three years, I remember I used to walk around my neighborhood with just the blinkers on. And as I got better, I started to see the layers in my neighborhood that that tea shop was owned by people from Fujian province. And they came from tea farms and they didn't really like the people at the bakery who were Shanghainese IE's. And there were all of these layers within the Shukuman community and the places around us that I wasn't able to even be aware of it until my Chinese kind of got to a certain level. And that show really helped me understand how some of the different layers and character types that were so common in that city helped me identify them
1: raise a really interesting point about language. And whilst language is not necessarily your ultimate symbol of being able to properly integrate or be part of the culture or society, it does help you really break into some of those layers that if you hadn't had even a basic level to have those conversations and that understanding, would you say? Been an expat in Shanghai, a city where 80% of the people would speak excellent English and would be able to.
0: What percentage did you say?
1: 80%? Is that really? No. In Qing'an? In Qing'an? Okay.
0: Maybe on Ch- i Nani, say that, that because no. I've never
1: had to speak English to Chinese people in China.
0: No, people rarely spoke a manageable amount of English, really? especially okay. if you went outside of. Downtown. I remember my first week going outside and I couldn't even order food. And I'd done Duolingo or something. And I was like, I'll get around. And it was just so debilitating and embarrassing. I was always surprised at how many people could live there for 10 years and speak nothing and have a very impressive understanding of the culture. Mm. But equally, I think, how can you really understand people if you can't let them? present their personalities in their native tongue. So I think certainly the decks stacked against you to understand the culture without it, not to say that it's impossible.
1: Do you think you'll head back at some point to visit? Very
0: curious to go see my life there. Or I got kids and stuff, little kids. So random holidays on my own exploring places I used to live in. It's not high on the priority list at the moment. They were both born in Shanghai. Really? I did not realize that. Lily was only six months when we moved to Hong Kong. She was just a baby, but she was definitely born in Pudong.
1: Stamped in their passport for life.
0: It's so weird now when I fill out a form saying, where were they born? And you say they were born in China.
1: I think it would be a very interesting journey when you go back in a positive way. I went back very recently after
0: three years. I definitely needed to be away from there, but that time has passed and I've started to notice in myself a curiosity to get back.
1: Mm. Yeah. I think the city in my very short amount of time there, there's new shoots, if that's a way to describe it. That's how I felt. A lot of my own memories was getting replaced by new memories. I could feel that happening
0: and that was yeah, Shanghai is like an ex-girlfriend that I was deeply in love with.
1: But you'll never get back together.
0: I'm not going to even try and rekindle the love. I'll have a coffee with her.
1: <laughs> a great way to end. It's been really wonderful to speak with you tonight, Andy.
0: Thanks, Liz. You really appreciate you having me on.
1: don't forget you can subscribe to clout asia on apple podcasts spotify or anywhere you get your podcasts you can also find us on instagram and linkedin as clout asia thank you for listening see you next time